0: Hello and welcome to Leading with James Ashton. This podcast brings together leaders from very different organisations in the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond. In each episode, my two guests swap stories about how they learnt to lead and their successes and failures at the top. I'm James Ashton, a journalist, conference speaker and consultant. In this episode, celebrating England's past and planning the future of air travel. Kate Maver is the Chief Executive of English Heritage, the protector of some of the country's oldest historical sites and monuments, including Stonehenge, Dover Castle and Hadrian's Wall. She joined in 2015 when the organisation gained charitable status and began the countdown to 2023 when its government funding will disappear. On Maver's watch, English Heritage now has more than one million members and recorded six and a half million visits to its main sites last year. She was formerly the Chief Executive of the National Trust for Scotland and earlier in her career led a management buyout of the interpreting service Language Line. John Holland Kay is the Chief Executive of Heathrow, the UK's largest airport through which more than 80 million passengers passed last year. It's no slouch at cargo either, handling about £130 billion worth of goods annually. If all goes according to plan, Heathrow should become significantly larger in 2026 when a third runway opens after years of political toing and froing and significant opposition. Ollen Kay is used to big building projects. He oversaw development of Heathrow's new Terminal Two, which opened in 2014, the year he got the top job. I began the conversation asking Kate how progress was going towards English Heritage's financial freedom in 2023. Well, we're
1: halfway through at the moment. It's going swimmingly well. We have exceeded all the top line targets we expected to and we have got a lot of wind in the sail so our membership is going way up. We've had our millionth member now and that's very encouraging because we believe that we are offering something fantastic and it's showing up in the number of visitors that are turning up and we've got eight years to prove that we can actually stand on our own two feet without any further government subsidy so that's where we're aimed.
0: And as a leader obviously you've got to keep telling everyone in the organisation and all the outside world and stakeholders that you can do it and you will get there. Is there any shred of doubt in your mind?
1: There isn't any doubt in mind that I'm going to get there financially, but I don't think it's all about the financial target. We can get through the tape. You know, you can cut your costs in the Mm. last year and still do it. It's not really about that. It's about building a charity brand so that people feel it's something they really want to support that they will always put their hand in their pocket for the tenor when you're trying to restore the Roman wall or put on a fantastic interpretation of some element of history and you want membership you want volunteers you want communities to feel that their castle is part of their community and is something they care about and know about so that their children will look after it in the next generation so that's the long term sustainability thing whether or not the numbers add up in year eight is just part of that journey it's a milestone
0: because looking you and your organisation it seems part of the challenge you've got is on certainly on the finances there's also to you know, get the brand better known as well.
1: Well that's right and we track the brand and the brand is moving all the time. I like to call a suite of brand metrics our brand warmth indicator because I think in charities you need warmth mm-hmm. charities are about people they want to know that their grandchildren are having a great time finding out about the Elizabethans and knowing something about their country. They may at the same time be contributing money which we're using to restore the mortar in the Mm. wall and make sure the ivy isn't pulling things down but that's not really going to excite them so we need to build a brand around the storytelling and you know passing on that sense of rootedness and where we come from is important.
0: And in terms of finding those the revenues that you have to do, I think your revenues are in the order of £120 million a year at the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's about getting people who went to all of your historic sites for free in the past. You wanting them, you're not necessarily putting admission on the door, but you're asking them to subscribe, to engage and to sort of pay to help your good works. And then, where possible, I don't want to sound cynical, you're putting in, there's a lot of cake being sold now.
1: <laughs> there is a lot of cake. Well, first thing to know is about thirds of our sites across the whole of England are free to go and look at and we have to maintain them so not free to look after but they're free to go and look at so that's why we're a charity and we want the support of people to fund the maintenance of those sites and the others are ones that you pay to go in if you're not a member Uh, we think the membership is a fantastic value for money and of course once you've got your membership you can go into as many as you like in the course of that year and once you're there of course we try and entice you to uh, into our shops and cafes uh, or stay in our holiday cottages. I mean, that's what mm. heritage organisations do. We do very well in that area because we are very good at understanding what people want to buy. And a lot of those people would be foreign tourists, for example, buying sweatshirts at Stonehenge. There's that kind of market. And then there's people just looking for a gift card or something for mum and all that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. Very, it's very bespoke retailing. Yes. Live which it, the brand lift the brand and indeed it's outperforming the high street that kind of retail because mm. it is something that people associate mm. with a day out it's not it's not a must shop event it's something that's part of the experience
0: sure john i wonder how many of those foreign tourists arrived at heathrow
2: well i was just thinking that and a, a lot <laughs> will be going to enjoy a lot of the english heritage sites and when we think about air travel we often think about our own journeys and we think about the outbound uh, side of things but of course at heathrow it's probably more if anything about the inbound it's it's the tourists the investors the uh, uh, the the students and uh, and the business people who are coming to the UK to spend money and I'd love to think about how we can join up their journey through Heathrow with English heritage and promoting uh, a lot of the great work that you do.
1: We already have Stonehenge on the Heathrow bus. You'll be pleased to know.
2: Great, and, uh, <laughs> and we've we've been doing a lot of work with Visit Britain over the last couple of years to just kind of promote great British destinations, mm-hmm. so that people see uh, Heathrow as a gateway to the fantastic heritage that we have here and
0: the all all the all of the other activities, uh, which is really is unique for the UK. Well, at a time of great change, you certainly can't move Stonehenge to to Slovakia in the way that you <laughs> might move a manufacturing site or something, which is a great a great hope for all of us. But John. And the way that Kate's got 2023 on her mind, I think 2026 is a date that's on your mind. This actually could be when the third runway at Heathrow opens for business. It is, um, yes. It seems amazing because we've been talking about it for decades. But as we sit here today, do you think we'll be there? Planes will be flying on that date?
2: Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, we're we're well advanced. We had a, a vote in Parliament last year where MPs voted by four to one in favour of Heathrow expansion. And uh, when you see... Where Parliament is today, that's a that's a, a remarkable uh, achievement, and just shows how much this is really something for the whole of the UK. Uh, so now we're getting on with the planning. We should conclude our planning consent by the end of two thousand and twenty-one, and then then we get on with the the earth moving and the construction. And uh, and the quicker we can get the new runway open, the better. That'll start to bring in the the extra routes. Uh, we'll have more competition and choice between airlines. But we can make Heathrow the best connected airport in the world, which will make Britain one of the best places in the world to do business from and also to come and visit. So Mm. it'll be a real growth engine for the whole country.
0: You know, this is this is such a huge project. I was looking at what Heathrow is doing and how and how you might operate. It almost feels like there's two jobs there. There's that sort of chief executive slash head of operations, of course, which you have a heritage in. But a huge part of your day job must be your chief lobbyist, aren't you?
2: Uh, well, I don't think of it as like that. I think I'm I'm chief listener. Going uh, so I spend a lot of my time with uh, local communities, some of the local villages, council leaders, and MPs, just trying to understand what they are concerned about. Because uh, one of the reasons we have got the huge uh, support we have for Heathrow expansion, which you wouldn't have expected would be the case five or six years ago, is because we've developed a plan that balances out all the um, all the needs of different communities, make sure it delivers for the UK as a whole. For for the UK regions, for people in the local communities. Uh, So there's something in it for everyone. And we've been able to do that by listening to people's concerns, understanding what is most important to them, and building a, a plan which balances all of those interests.
0: But still a lot of, I mean, you know, clearly you have listened. I can't, I, I imagine you've sat at, uh, you know, hundreds of community you know meetings in town halls all around West London. There's still a lot of opposition. I mean, there are people in court, there's environmentalists, there's even the mayor of London. I mean, do you just have to sort of plough on regardless, or, or do you keep the conversation going as the, as the bulldozers move in?
2: We do, because actually there's a huge amount of support. Uh, and I, I do listen to those relatively few voices who are uh, still actively opposing. But the vast majority of people we see are either actively supporting or would take the view that, well, now the parliament's made a decision, let's just get on with it and and, uh, and make it happen. And particularly as we think of a world beyond Brexit, not having a country which is connected to all the long haul destinations that the UK wants to trade with just is impossible from a, a political or from an economic point of view. So uh, I think I think there's a sense that, that it's the right thing to do now and, and we just have to
0: get on with it. Kate, to go back to you, and I was going to come on and ask John about the Heathrow and the expansion that will happen is totally funded by private money I mean it's a very it's a very sort of different dynamic with how you how you change English heritage I suppose Do you um, think you've had to sort of change the mindset of your people to think with a more commercial edge
1: well funnily enough I thought I would have to because obviously English heritage was part of government before I I joined but actually because of the cuts that they were suffering year in year out which was out of their control, They had already recognised that they could generate their own funds to make up the difference. So they were actually pretty much on top of getting as much money as they could Mm. out of showing people, you know, an amazing time at all our sites. What I've found is the challenge for us now is that if we are going to be a charity that people see as a charity, they've got to love us. You know, and mm. loving us doesn't mean just a transactional relationship. It means involving people so that they actually feel it's very much part of what they want to contribute to, because you know most of our income will come from consumers rather mm. than donors and philanthropists. Obviously, we've got to build up that uh, charitable income stream, and we will do over time. But it takes a long time to develop that. So we, in the meantime, we have to be really working hard on generating our own money. Mm. So we'll do that. You know, we will. Encourage film companies to come and borrow one of our sites to put, you know, to actually film something. And that again adds interest for the visitors. And then once it screens, they want to come and see where it's filmed. So there's other ways of developing income, which is something that we will obviously focus more and yeah. more on as we become. More business-like, I think.
0: If if the film studio, the film sets are coming into, you know, historic sites, I mean, do, does English Heritage have to be a bit less precious than it might have been in the past? I mean, would you let them now put that camera tripod over there or mock up something over there where, where previously you wouldn't have let them?
1: I think we are. We can't not be precious in the sense that we are protecting the monuments for posterity is one of our core charitable objectives. Mm. But what we do now is we're more customer-focused. So instead of saying, perhaps that's too much trouble, let's not have the film set, we will now deploy a, a team of people on the site who will help the film company navigate the areas where they can't you know, drill mm. big tent pegs into the archaeology below or risk getting a bit close to the Rembrandt. You know, We facilitate it, but we still want them to come. Mm. So it, I would say we're much more client-centric and we put more resource into making it easy for film companies to come and shoot at our sites.
0: Client-centric It's a sort of exp- that that sort of some history lovers, some archaeologists would be would sort of wince at. You know, you're a business as well as a charity
1: business we're in the business of bringing history to life and we're in the business of ensuring that in 50 to 100 years time our descendants will care as much as we do about looking after these sites mm. and to do that we need to excite people about them yeah. and help people understand why they're important.
0: John tell me a bit about the day to day at Heathrow when all of these conversations about third runway are not happening there is a sort of a, a vast organism in west london i think 75,000 staff on site and 80 million passengers going through every year. I mean, how close do you think as a leader you have to be to the minutiae of all that?
2: Well, I don't get into the detail of it. It is an incredibly complex thing. and But actually, from a management style point of view, I don't think you can micromanage a business, particularly one that is this complex. You have to have a, a really good team who know what they're doing and and lead their teams and and i've i've always found that that works for me that what i what i like to do with my team is is first choose choose a good group of people then agree with them what the strategy is and then just let them get on with it and part of my role is then helping to support them, um, helping to bring together the agenda so that everyone is working uh, towards a, um, a common objective, and uh, to provide some leadership about sure. what we're trying to achieve. And it was interesting hearing Kate talking about being uh, client-centric. The uh, the equivalent for us is uh, being passenger-centric. We may be this big, complex organization with 76,000 people, but we only exist to help someone get on and off a plane. It's, it really is as simple as that. Is People are going to come here for the destinations they're getting to. So we have to make it as easy consistent as possible for people to get through the airport and it is amazing how a company can lose sight of what its purpose is and there have been times when uh people would have thought about us as being a, a retail outfit just trying to make money out of shops or a construction company just building new terminals we're none of those things we are just here to help someone catch a plane and it takes continual repetition of that message to get people to understand that any mm. decision they make needs to be seen through the eyes of what is right for the passenger. Mm. Because if we get it right for them, more people will come and choose to use Heathrow. Mm. More people will choose to spend money in the shops when they're travelling through. And the more people do that, the lower our landing charges become because of the way that we are funded. And the more people will then choose to come and use us again. So there's a real virtuous circle there. But
0: it all starts with the passenger. Fair enough. It's a big organisation. You're you're there for the big picture. And your sort of lieutenants, if you like, are there to to look after the rest. But do you look at um, something equivalent to the till roll every night, the, the retailer would? Do you sort of see the stats or or punctuality or something, just to keep a check on on how it went yesterday?
2: I do look at uh, the key statistics, and those are based around our core purpose, happy passengers travelling with their bags on time. So I look at the baggage completion statistics, Mm. I look at punctuality, I look at passenger satisfaction for the day, and then I look at uh, late-running flights, because that's part of our role Mm. in the local community. Uh, There's nothing that annoys our neighbours more than if a plane takes off after 11.30 yeah. but it happens more often than I'd like it to. So uh, what I'm aiming to do is to halve the number of late running flights over uh, a five year period uh, that's the one I focus on most of all yeah. because I don't, I don't think that uh, our neighbours should be woken up because yeah. an airline hasn't been able to turn the plane around quickly mm. enough.
0: It's Always interesting to me how a business or an organisation sets the the metrics by which success looks like. And, and clearly, your figures are a lot better than Heathrow has had more troubled times than today, John. Let's put it let's put it that way. And I know you've been in the in the business for for ten years, but people still say, "Oh well, come on, you know, there's a degree of monopoly here. It should be much more cost effective, and so on." This might be the airline saying that, by the way. But but how do you respond?
2: Uh, actually, we do a really good job. Um, we ten years ago we were um, in the bottom ten airports in the world in terms of passenger satisfaction now we're in the top 10 actually Mm. number 8 and it goes goes back to Kate's point about you want an an experience that people love that people can feel proud of and when you go to somewhere like Singapore people really do feel proud about Changi Airport and and that's the that's the gateway Mm. and the materialisation of the national culture it should be the same at Heathrow we should be uh, promoting the best of British uh, our our British values our heritage and people should be really proud about uh, having such a great um, airport serving the whole country and that's what we are trying to achieve and I think We've we've made uh, some good progress towards mm-hmm. that. But it's why our vision is about giving passengers the best airport service in the world, mm. not being number eight. Being, so number eight, so when best. will you be number one? It'll take us a few years. Uh, being number one means overtaking Changi Airport in Singapore, uh, mm-hmm. who are really class act. And the thing that sets them a- apart is not the infrastructure, the terminals, you know, we have world Because they built, a, I
0: think they built a third runway in, a, in the time it takes us to have a consultation
2: Well actually they, they are they're building one at the moment and it is taking them quite a while and will probably cost them more than the Heathrow expansion will take uh, so actually we're getting on pretty well but um, what is unique about Changi is they have a really great service culture where everyone across the airport is working to serve the passenger and that's what we are trying to create at Heathrow and it takes time to build that up and a, a, a relentless focus uh, until long past I am bored of talking about it, about just just get things right for the passenger mm. and everything else will work.
0: Mm. Kate, okay, and your success metrics, I think, are about, it's about getting more people in, getting them excited about history in the broadest sense. Um, and then, obviously, there's things about loving the organisation and, and then the financial ones, which I've gone on about too much already. But it's that sort of grouping.
1: I That's think. right. I mean, we've got visitor experience scores in a number of categories. The one that matters to me is, do people, say, I left thinking gosh I never knew that because I believe that learning is very close to enjoyment and we want people to have a great time but we are not a theme park you know we are something that you come away thinking gosh, those Romans were pretty good engineers, weren't they? And, you know, Or something like that. Because that's quite fun and it does connect people with the past. So visitor experience very important for us. The condition of all our monuments, uh, which we look after for the nation, absolutely critical and we've just come up with a, a groundbreaking new way of assessing whether something is, is in a sustainable condition mm. rather than just counting all the things wrong with it. We're saying, will this still be standing in 50 years if we're looking after it properly? Those are the sort of things that really matter to mm. us.
0: Tell me about the decision making given, given you have got the finite resource. I mean there's always money I guess you can spend on on historical sites. I know there's a lot you've done recently with the Iron Bridge is a, is a good example. So how do you make that decision between we must do more to you know give these wonderful things a wash and brush up or I must put in a new visitor centre or I must sort of you know sharpen up the website so more, more members come and look there?
1: Oh well, that's a really good question because previously the way we assessed the sites was basically working out what it would cost to deal with every single defect we could find and so you're faced with this huge bill which you're never going to get on top of and I draw the comparison with other charities you know who might have the aim of ending poverty or bringing clean water to every Mm. village the job's never done and you know that I feel quite comfortable about that we'll never have everything absolutely in tip top repair from that point of view but to prioritise we need to start with the basics, what is the most historically significant element of this big site because that's what Mm. we're looking after, it's unique, it's not replicated anywhere else so that has to come first, how vulnerable is it you know we have a way of scoring things you know what condition in, how vulnerable is Mm. it, how important is it and that gives us the ranking and then we target our money at the ones in the most need Mm. and work our way through and as with every charity the more the money we raise the more we can do so as Mm. long as we're making sure that we're holding on to the the most important things and then in terms of prioritizing uh, the visitor attraction business that we Mm. have we have got to earn lots of money and we know that because we have lots of things we want to do and our whole education program has to be funded Mm. so we have as any business would we do that strategic sorting out of Which investment in which site in which area of the country is going to generate the most footfall Mm. and therefore the most money to feed into the cost of our education programme and our conservation? Because
0: one concern about you being spun off and given your sort of freedom, if you like, is that Mm. um, that you would have the sort of the commercial glasses on and and pour the money into I think what you call your honeypots. So Mm -hmm. you know, make Stonehenge all singing, all dancing, and and that Mm. sort of you know poor crumbling barn half of the country that no one visits very much that just Mm. you know gently fall into disrepair.
1: Well. First of all, every business has its 80-20, doesn't it? So we are absolutely all for maxing out on Stonehenge and a huge influx of Chinese tourists spending money in the shop because we need to look after that barn and we need the money to do it. Mm. So as I've just described, we have our way of prioritizing our conservation work. And it may be that Stonehenge is fine, but the crumbling barn is the only example of a medieval crook barn of this yep, period. Yep. Therefore, it would be high up on the priority list. Mm. And as the money washes through from the footfall, then mm. it would go to the barn. Mm. So mm. we need the honey pots, as you call them, to fund the rest of what we do. Yep. And it's a business model you see in lots of other mm. industries that do you use that yeah. money.
0: John, we talk a lot about what, what may happen construction-wise at, at, at Heathrow, but probably shouldn't forget that in all the time you've been there, a part of Heathrow has been a building site, I think, almost consistently. It has. So there yes. is a sort of an air traffic control on the ground, if you like, there, about how you manage that alongside the day-to-day operation.
2: Yes, we've pretty much rebuilt the airport while keeping it running, which is a huge challenge given how a plane takes off or lands every 45 seconds. And so we've we've had to be invisible builders, first building Terminal 5, which was towards the end of the airport, which wasn't really developed. Terminal two, which I was responsible for, was a much bigger challenge because that, that was right in the middle of the central terminal area and uh, you're building cheek-by-jowl with with the runway and live planes. But we've been able to do that very successfully, and that's allowed us to have an airport which is now scalable, that uh, we can expand it, starting with just using the existing terminals much more effectively, and building on the core public transport interchange with the Piccadilly Line, Crossrail, Uh, as it comes in, new lines to the west and the south, uh, and the biggest bus and coach station in the UK. It's a really fantastic multimodal interchange which means that anyone can get anywhere once they get to Heathrow.
0: Why isn't the UK better at leading these big projects, looking at what's happened recently with Crossrail and the sort of questions about HS2 going forward, or actually are we not that bad and we're just a bit hard on ourselves?
2: Actually I I think the latter. I think we're really good at this kind of thing, and and go back to the Olympics a massive success uh, with huge challenge. Terminal 5 Uh, also a huge success. Uh, Terminal 2 was delivered on time, on budget. Uh, We have real skills here and certainly in the airport world and the infrastructure world, whenever anyone is building an airport anywhere in the world, which is happening a lot, they come and see what we are doing and they come and talk to our supply chain and then quite often they take that supply chain with them. So it's become a really big uh, success story. I think what we learned from something like Crossrail is that, uh, actually it's a reminder that these things are really complex. That Lots of things have to be managed. interface, there's always a lot of political pressure around sticking to a particular date. There's usually uh, not enough contingency money put in to deal with unexpected things that happen and so we kind of set ourselves up to fail and I think that's a real shame because crossrail will be a huge success and but there's been some fantastic sure. uh, skills used in that and but things how do, you do, we do it better? do you
0: just forget about that you have to just forget about the date and have an open-ended sort of
2: no you've always got to have uh, so when, when I when I took over terminal 2 it was about halfway through being built it was um, over budget and uh, and it was late at the time and it was a real concern for us because terminal 5 had opened the first few days had not gone well but it it, it had then matured and actually was performing really well so we were very conscious that everyone would want to know whether terminal two would be the same that was the only question i was asked for 18 months but we managed to bring it in on time and on budget and it took a huge amount of work to do that but actually in that case having a uh, having a date that we had set um, really helped to focus the mind and pull people together. Mm. What, what I've learned with with these mega projects is that you really just have to drive the schedule and get things uh, and and do what it takes to get things done uh, on time, provided you're not sacrificing safety, because safety always has to come first. Once you release the schedule and you say, actually, um, we're going to take another six months, then it won't take another six months. It'll take another. 18 months um, mm. because suddenly the all the momentum that you've been built up all the all the connectedness of the schedule um, goes away and actually ends up costing you a lot more
0: because mm. time is money in these big projects it sounds like there's some uh, there's an analogy there with brexit which of course we're not talking about we're, of course we're not talking about. <laughs> Kate I'm interested in competitiveness in 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 your world there there are only so many bodies that you talk about the warmth of the brand and so on people have have a, a limited Purse. They only want to support others. So, so do you regard yourself, if you like, English heritage in competition with the likes of National Trust or others?
1: Uh, yes, I do. In a um, sort of collegiate spirit I used to run the National Trust for Scotland and the whole National Trust thing is very dear to my heart. I think it's a fantastic organisation with great values. I like competition because it means that we all try and do better and it's a virtuous circle. And if they've got the absolutely drop-dead gorgeous carrot cake, then we're going to have to do better to make sure we've got an even better one. Uh, But we have got different sites and different emphasis. I mean, we are very much the history brand. You know, we have got the sites that tell the story of... England, since people mm. first walked the land, six millennia of sites. And that's really our emphasis. And we're quite educational in the sense that we want people to, you know, do the jigsaw, which part of the jigsaw is this part of history. Mm. But we also know that if people are on holiday in an area, they're going to want to do our site and the local National Trust site and Mm. the local little church and the Little Heritage Museum and we want everybody to go to all of them so we Mm. will willingly point people in the direction of the National Trust property across the way in the confident expectation that if they have a great experience there they'll then come and do another heritage site or they yeah. may welcome back to ours if they're a member yeah. so I think it's about growing the cake and making sure that we all raise our game to show people a really good day out, in our. because each site is unique, you're not comparing like with like because every site has a very different heritage and a very different story.
0: No sure but there is a commonality to going to going out to see you know something very very old whether it's sort of an exterior or an interior mm-hmm. and then you're talking about cake as well now but and having a cup of tea and a slice of cake afterwards so there's yes. a, you know, you will do that that one day maybe i don't know go whitewater rafting the next or something for, yes, for... but
1: you'll probably come back yes a lot of people keep coming back
0: and talking about your role as you've very much made this part of your strategy as a sort of a, a flag carrier for history and so on mm-hmm. what's your view when um say you get danny dyer in prime time on bbc one and people say oh this is dumbing down of, of history are you of the view that if it talks about henry ii in prime time that's fine it doesn't really matter how it's done
1: well as long as it's what it's been what's been told sure. is actually what happened and as much as we can know what happened. One of the core values of English heritage is authenticity, uh, and we are very, very wedded to that. And I think you have to just differentiate between telling history in a simple way and changing what we think happened historically to make it more fun or more entertaining and you know bringing in aspects that would liven it up that nobody has got any evidence for we've got a very solid basis of research and source everything that we tell in our storytelling but there's plenty of fun stuff to tell and there's lots of really imaginative ways of telling it in an entertaining way which I do not think think of as dumbing down
0: no no who is that leader in history that that uh, inspires do you think if you can pick one?
1: Oh, which historical leader? Well, each in each in their own way. I mean, you'd expect me to say Queen Elizabeth I because, you know, with Tilbury Fort, one of our sites, she is somebody who really, for her age, uh, for the, the age she mm. lived in, was remarkable.
0: John, just to dive back into your background and when we talked about sort of how you got the Queen's Terminal, running but you had that background in well everything from brewing to to construction really what was the point at which you thought you know i'm someone who can run things i i wonder whether it was bass brewers when you had that sort of national sales force i guess a lot of people quite opinionated in that industry as well
2: that was the first time i was given a chance to run the big team i'd, I'd spend the first nine years of my career in consulting running small teams but I knew I'd learned through that, that. I wasn't a very good consultant, but I did enjoy <laughs> managing people and, and getting things done. Mm. And which is why I went into industry with Bass. And I was lucky that someone gave me a chance to run what was quite a big team. And uh, we, we had initially about 500 million pounds of sales and a team of about 100 people. And I really enjoyed the leadership challenge that came out of there. And particularly when I mean, leadership only really comes out when things aren't going well and you have to step up and say things that people don't necessarily expect to hear, want to hear, and uh, it can be difficult. And I really got a buzz out of that. And um, it was out of that that I first started to think, well, maybe I could lead an organization. I would often look at other chief executives and think, uh, could I do what they do? And it was only when I became a chief executive that I realized I wasn't doing their job, I was doing my job. And I had to do it in my own way that that was true to me. And actually it was quite a quite a relief to realize that, that that um, we spend a lot of our lives pretending to be someone we aren't because mm. we think that's what people expect of us. And when you become chief executive more than in any other role, you can really just be yourself. And mm. uh, uh, it is quite releasing. And, uh, and that's helped uh, us, I think, to really changed the culture of the organization Mm. and uh, i found that really fulfilling
0: and was there someone that helped you on the way a mentor that you would look up to
2: there have been a few um particularly people who have given me opportunities and allowed me to uh, get on with things um i probably learned most most about the, the the skills of being a chief executive from my predecessor colin matthews who always gave me a lot of space and kind of encouraged me to try things out not necessarily by anything he said explicitly but just by not saying no, and I've, I found that uh, if I came to him with an idea and said, "What do you think about this?" He said, "Well, yeah, give it a go." And- I, can, I
0: can almost picture him making that face then as well. <laughs> and
2: and <laughs> um, and he so he gave a lot of a lot of freedom to uh, to uh, to me to get on and uh, make things happen. And that's what I try to do with with my own team. And sometimes I do have uh, Colin's voice in my head when I find myself in a in a meeting. And uh, it, it's I, I, and I think that's part of the legacy that you uh, you leave something in the people who you've worked with who will be your successors one day. Mm. And you want to make sure that that's a, a sort of positive set of values and um, some good experience that will
0: stand them in good stead when they're sitting in your seat. But is it, but uh, as you said uh, said it there, you you do it your own way. You are you are running. The same organisation, which has changed, but you're a very, very different person, you know. To Colin, and having interviewed him, you know, I, I would say that. In fact, I think someone, someone must have been doing very a nice job for this day. I remember one one article said that it was very helpful. You look good on telly, um, which is which has helped you get this job. They said they that was the <laughs> Sunday Times, so it was very credible. Um, but but there is something about being that front man that I think you're more comfortable with than than I would observe Colin ever was, because you know you had that sort of comms and uh, investor relations background at. One point within in the construction company do you, do you recognize that
2: yes i do i mean i don't think it's something that anyone can prepare you for and and when you when you see uh someone who's senior in a business and they're talking with prime ministers cabinet ministers mm. and so on you and you, you think gosh i can never do that but actually when you're in the in in, in the seat yourself then you just do they're, they're normal mm. people and people do respond to you differently when you mm. are the chief executive compared to mm. to uh, any other role and that gives you a lot of permission to do things, uh, but you've you've clearly got to be responsible with with what you have. But I, but I do think that um, your own personality starts to shape the personality of the organisation and the way that it is seen, mm. and um, and so you have to be very consistent uh, with living your values which is is not all, not always easy because we all we all face challenges that will test us but also the organization starts to be, and, and what what the organization does reflects on you and mm. if if people see a dissonance between what's happening some way down the organization and what you're talking about, then that starts to that yeah. could undermine your credibility. So when you're changing the culture, it is, uh, it is always uh, tempting to try to do things really quickly. Yeah. But actually, it takes, it takes years and years and mm. years of repetition and change, and changing some of the people to really get it to be the way that you'd like
0: it to be. And you're almost five years in now, so it must be your organization by now.
2: It is. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's changed enormously. And one, one of the first things I did was to um, start changing our recruitment and training culture. We doubled the training budget so that we could get people coming from frontline roles into management. We had almost 10% of our team were promoted last year, a lot of them being frontline people. And now I can start to see them coming to management positions. And as they do so, they are improving our our ethnic diversity our gender diversity we've closed our gender pay gap last year which is a really great step forward we've become a, an employer of choice for LGBT plus which is fantastic and uh, one of the one of the greatest moments for me was uh, talking to a colleague and she said I came out to people at work before I came out to people at home mm. because I knew that at work no one cared mm. and I thought that's a fantastic uh, mm. place to get to if, mm. if actually it doesn't matter yeah. who
0: you are. It matters who mm. you are and what you're doing and where you're going to. Mm. Kate, there was a natural punctuation mark, if you like, when you came in and took over English Heritage. The, the, the chap that ran it before, I think 13 years, very much done it his way. So did you take much of that with you or was it one of the attractions of the role was this is kind of a new organization. I'm going to do it my way.
1: Well, that was definitely the attraction in coming to mm. do it because I was living up in Scotland at the time, so it was quite a big personal decision to come down and do this. I I was interested in doing it because I thought it was a, an interesting challenge to take something that had been pretty much, you know, a civil service organisation into the charity sector. And I'm interested in culture change. Uh, I love the industry because I think it's full of, you know, passionate people and so knowledgeable about all sorts of aspects of history which is so interesting and they're also very much public facing the mm. people who work in the sites so i was i wasn't really very Attentive to what there'd been in the past, to be honest, because I always think, well, what am I going to do looking forward? Mm. I didn't have. Uh, Simon was an architectural historian. He, you know, he's the, love, previous he CEO, yeah. the previous CEO. He's the previous CEO, and he's written books about architectural history. So I was coming from as someone who didn't have that background. Mm. So I never expected to be somebody who people would look to for a, some kind of endorsement of how we interpreted mm. history. And I was really there to bring a new culture of being a charity rather than being a government body uh and also the whole business background i have yeah. as we talked about already uh making sure that the the visitors and the members the people are actually on site are oh. at the center of what we do
0: i mean you've described yourself as a marketer at heart yes. and i think if i if i go back through the cv you've, you've also been a, a founder of, of, of an organization and market research firm i think yes um you can't regard english heritage as a startup but i guess you can sort of aim to sort of get the juices flowing and get everybody up for the challenge
1: Well, that's right. And that's the sort of thing that I like about English heritage. And and a lot of my previous roles have been where there's a, a particularly big challenge and that you need to see a change in the course of 5 to 10 years and that's what interests me and coming to run it if it was in a steady state was something that wouldn't necessarily have attracted no, you me. you
0: need a burning platform What else? I wonder if there's someone who who you've lent on through your career one person in particular or, or several who sort of given you the advice and mentorship to, um, to sort of pilot through all these interesting companies.
1: You know similar to John I mean I had somebody who picked me out when I was first made up to be chief executive and when I was not expecting to at all mm. uh, and it was in a a small company Uh, I was the marketing director Uh, I was enjoying doing it and it didn't occur to me at all that I would ever be a chief executive Uh, and when I was asked if I would take it on I had two children under the age of five and Mm. was already struggling to try and get everything happening in my life uh, to the right standard, shall we say, on both camps. So it was a big decision, but I recognized at the time that I was never going to get that chance again. And much as it was a a huge thing at the time to fit everything in my life, I don't regret it because a bit like, John, once you do it, you suddenly realise that it opens up all sorts of opportunities for you. And the chairman of the company who asked me to do it is the person that that sort of supported me through that stage and had faith in me. And then I was invested in, I was sent to the London Business School to get, you know, that sense of the rounded role rather than the silo role that you have when you've come up through one one function, mm. and that gave me a lot more confidence. I think because you're always doubting yourself. You know, do sure. I, can I really do this?
0: It feels anecdotally that for whatever reason, women have made more progress in charitable organisations than I think they have in 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 business. Um, it, it just feels from as I as I look at different sectors. Do you agree, and why do you think that is?
1: Um, I don't know the stats, so I don't know if I do agree. I think that it's about the culture and the environment in the business you work in, and when I think when I was asked to to step up to chief executive the people that i was working with they they just didn't think of me as being either a man or a woman they just thought this person's the right person to do this mm. and i would like to think that that would happen you know more and more as the next generations come through mm. we are a more liberal tolerant society we do it's no longer acceptable to think of women differently as men and i think that a lot of the The barriers there were and the preconceptions have gone Mm. uh, and that the reason there are fewer women in the more senior roles is because it takes a long time to get into those senior roles. And it's taken Mm. a while for that change to happen. But I do think there are pockets all over the place. And this is evidenced of... I suppose prejudice is the word to use, or people thinking that female skills are not relevant to this particular area. But also there's that whole, uh, as I experienced myself, stress on women if they are trying to uh, bring up a family with an employer that doesn't recognise that and doesn't give you Mm. flexibility, because it's all about flexibility, Mm. um, then that is a real barrier. And I think that in a lot of businesses when it comes to the sort of investment you have to make in a business in a senior role alongside the investment you want to make in your family, mm. it is really difficult to do both well. And that can be very, very stressful. So
0: it's amazing how what that set a lot of store by what that chairman did, that chairman saw you and, and very enlightened and then sort of, you know, brought you up. And I suppose we do have more of those leaders doing that now, John, don't we? I mean, as you've said, you've, you've tried to make... He throw a lot more diverse.
2: Yeah, I I have, and we've. Um, when I looked at the organisation five years ago, we could see there was fantastic diversity at the lower levels of the organisation, but it wasn't coming up through the business, and that's why we've made some of the changes we've made. By a bit of luck and a bit of design, when I came into the job, I changed our executive committee and moved to equal numbers of men and women on the exec. And I I think we're probably one of the first big companies to do that. And uh, that was partly because they were the best people for the job. But also, I wanted to make a point about uh, this is the kind of organization Mm -hmm. we want to be. And it was much more challenging than I thought it would be because, uh, and it's pretty obvious, really, that diversity is clearly the right thing. And certainly, somewhere like Heathrow, we have the most diverse customer base imaginable. You think of every nationality and culture and age traveling through uh, Heathrow. Sure. Um, so we we ought to be really diverse. And I thought of myself as being a pretty good manager, but I realised I'd never actually managed such a diverse team. Most most of my teams have been sort of predominantly male, and. And uh, looking back, you could see that uh, a lot of the men were behaving in quite a, a uh, macho way, and quite often the women would indulge them and, uh, a little bit and would, would, would had found their way of working. When you move to equal numbers of men and women, those dynamics don't work anymore. The men can't be macho. They have to find a much more sophisticated way of interacting with each other and with the women and, and vice versa. And I, I think uh, quite a lot of powerful women hadn't been used to working with other powerful women as, as equals. And it was quite mm. an interesting dynamic. And it took much more work to uh, to make that effective than I thought it would. But we've now got to a point where we've got a really effective leadership team and we're now working on achieving the same level of effectiveness further down the
0: organization and from having worked all around the world Philippines Australia U.S., I mean, does that all sort of come home to roost when you, when you you get the top job at Heathrow?
2: I think it helps to have some understanding of other cultures. Mm. Now, I, I do spend a reasonable amount of time going out to visit other airports, airlines, my, visit my customers. We've got a very diverse international shareholder base, uh, so I get, go out and visit them as well. And uh, it makes for a very dull itinerary because uh, it's quite rare to actually leave an airport when you're, when you're on that kind of trip. But you can, you can literally uh, go to five different countries in five days Mm. see five different world-class airports and top airlines never having left an airport it's Mm. uh, 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 it's efficient but dull
0: and how do you keep in touch with the with the that's keeping in touch with the shareholder base but keeping in touch with the grassroots I mean uh, you know will people find you on, on the help desk you know, once a month, or, or, or something like that, or are you are you heaving bags around?
2: Well, I don't heave bags, but I do spend quite a lot of time out in the business. So I'll go out on safety visits, where I'll go to a different part of the business and just talk to people doing frontline roles about uh, safety. What are the issues? Um, how can we help them? Um, I spend some time working on the security lines, uh, helping with the, the trays. That's a good way of just both meeting passengers and also having a bit of time to chat to colleagues because people will often come to me and, and, and want a quiet word. Oh, this
0: is when people go through the scanner then? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Okay, right. So
2: I'm not qualified to do some of the other, the, the, the moving bag rolls or the actual security roles themselves. But um, I do I do really
0: enjoy meeting our team and uh, and meeting passengers because that's what it's all about. And do you think you get things from that sort of Almost like Mystery Shopper, are you you finding out things there? Of course, your staff know who you are, but are they telling you things that maybe your direct reports don't?
2: I I certainly learn a lot. And the funny thing (laughs) is that if if I'm there in a suit, then people know who I am. If I put on one of our purple Here to Help t-shirts, then people don't. And so uh, so and and some of some of my frontline colleagues will respond to me in an entirely different way, in a
0: much more natural way, and that's quite healthy to see. And Kate, can you go out um, undercover in that way, or do uh, does everyone know who you are?
1: I think a lot of people know it, know who I am because we have our members magazine with a big picture of me, in, unfortunately. <laughs> but I mean, I've been, the last thing I did was to volunteer to man the lost luggage at the Stonehenge solstice, which was quite an experience. So that's when you're there at sort of two in the morning uh, watching the sunrise. Well, in fact, from the lost wow. luggage tent, I couldn't actually see the sun rising through the stones. And it's, what's uh, that
0: like? So everyone must be, you know, blissed out and not caring where their rucksack is.
1: There is all sorts of things going on and amazing things lost. and, and and happily, a lot of lost iPhones were found by their owners when they came to pick them up. So it was quite a nice experience And feeling. the
0: most, the oddest thing that was lost?
1: Um, there were a number of musical instruments, I think. I'm trying to think if there was anything other than that. Oh, yes, I know exactly what it was. It was a wizard had lost his staff. <laughs> and uh, he'd come <laughs> all the way from Germany. And the staff he'd had for, he'd, he'd had it and since from his no wife idea. had died. And it was very ah. significant to him emotionally. That was a bit of a heartbreaker because yeah. we didn't, get it back somebody went off with it and it was genuinely mm. a really really sentimental mm. object for him
0: but what do you get out of those sort of grassroots visits if you like I guess I guess with English Heritage there's the full-time staff and there's volunteers there is a, a, a real mix of people who, who help keep the show on the road
1: Well, that's right. And I've deliberately engaged volunteers in engagement sessions I've had where they haven't previously been invited in to tell us what they think about us, because they've got lots of great ideas too. Uh, What I find out is that the uniforms aren't warm enough because the wind's so cold on Salisbury Plain. And, you know, how come nobody's listened to our... Pay demands. I find that people are quite talk to me quite freely. I don't. I I find it very useful. Uh, And people, I encourage people to tell me exactly what they think, Uh, and they do. And I like that. And I've always done that. And uh, I think that's the best way of leading the team is to go mm. out there and listen whether you're in a gardener's bothy or behind the till at dover castle you know you can really see the challenges when you've got people behind the till with a whole you must have this at he with a huge wave of visitors are all looking at their watches and you've got to process them and there's a lot of pressure on staff in the front line
0: and if people and if you're you're there soaking that or, or like a sponge i guess on any trip out saying come and email me or or just tap me on the shoulder whatever is ever get a bit lonely
1: um I don't think so, actually, because people are so friendly. I don't find it a lonely place. I mean, I don't. I'm not really. I mean, I'm not somebody who's very clubbable. So I don't, you know, go to other CEO sessions and join up with other people and ask them if they're feeling lonely. Mm. I, I, think I get a lot of energy from the people that work with us. Uh, but and then I would take, you know, if I was feeling low about something or worry about something, I'm more likely to turn to my own personal mm. friends uh, rather than somebody. Take it out to the business. The business
0: yeah. Yes, John, I would regard you as fairly clubbable. Uh, in terms of sort of sharing with other CEOs and so on. Is that a is that useful sort of release valve? or
1: We have quite
2: a wide network of business partners, and there are some who I'd say had sort of become quite good friends through that, where we have sort of shared values and we're working together on things. And that's very much the way Heathrow is. Uh, we think of it as one entity, but actually there's 400 different companies work there, 76,000 people. So actually bringing people together is part of the part of the job. But the funny thing is, you don't often talk to other chief executives about the nature of being chief executive. Um, you quite mm-hmm. often talk about um, business and culture and things like that. Uh, and, that and, and there is so much we can learn from one another as, 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 as I've, I've certainly learned listening to Kate and, and a huge amount of common issues even in businesses that feel quite different.
0: Well thank you for listening and thank you for talking John Holland Kay from Heathrow and Kate Maver from English Heritage. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to season one of Leading with me James Ashton. These podcasts are being released weekly. Please subscribe so you don't miss the latest one. If you've enjoyed what you've heard please follow us on Twitter at LeadingPod and rate and review.